The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Very good morning, everybody. This is Sportbox. U.S. stocks fall for the first time in five days, deepening losses after regulators halt Eli Lilly's coronavirus drug trial over safety concerns, with the company telling CNBC the move was, quote, out of an abundance of caution. Uh, the U.S. Senate will vote on a slimmed-down stimulus plan this month as the IMF chief economist tells CNBC a rescue package would significantly boost America's recovery prospects. If there is a stimulus which is about the size of the CARES Act, then that will add about two percentage points to growth uh, in 2021. Apple unveils its lineup of iPhone 12 devices with a wider range of pricing and new capabilities, including the tech giant's first foray into 5G. They Today is the beginning of a new era for iPhone. Today, we're bringing 5G to iPhone. Bank shares lose steam during the session despite big EPS beats for both JP Morgan and Citi as investors switch focus to Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley due to report earnings today. Well, welcome to the programme this morning. Woulda, coulda, shoulda. Perhaps the uh, refrain for what ought to have happened on the markets yesterday, given Karen's headlines and the two key events that the markets were building up to this week, and perhaps an explainer as to why we have seen so many positive sessions of late. Let me break it down. One was the bank earnings. We've been focused on the bank earnings because they represent the lifeblood of the US economy. They give an indication of credit expansion and also asset quality. And you know what? They weren't bad. They beat estimates. The two banks that we focused on, JP Morgan and Citigroup, the revenue lines were strong. Even the provisioning that people got worried about wasn't as significant as some might have feared. And yet the bank earnings did not inflate the bank stocks. In fact, the bank stocks were not strong. And when we look at the Spider Bank ETF, down 2.86%. Of course, that bled through into the performance of the overall indices. But the other problem uh, for the Nasdaq and some of those tech-focused stocks in the S&P is that the market didn't really care very much about the Apple event either. And yet, in Star Trek uh, terms, this is the next generation for the Apple iPhone. And we're going to talk a lot about that over the program, of course. And we'll talk about just how important the upgrade cycle could be for Apple here. So when the dust finally settled, as you can see from these big red chips behind me, we were ultimately negative across the trading session. Big turnaround from recent trading sessions. And it wasn't even a question of growth or value. Both growth and value were negative. So what about the Asian market session? Have we followed on? 
you know what, it's a little bit uh, red, isn't it? When we look at the Asian trade at the moment, the Nikkei is barely above the plimsoll line here. And you know what, just to pick up on what should have happened, perhaps the reason we didn't get the fizz from those events is the reality is the market was more focused on the coronavirus vaccine trials. And uh, it's very interesting because it gives you a good sense of what the market is already pricing in for economic recovery next year based on the premise that we do have working vaccines. But we've now got the Eli Lilly trial suspended and we've got the uh, J&J trial temporarily suspended at the moment. So what about Europe? How do we take the legacy of all of this for the European trading session? Well, it's very early doors, but the indication at the moment on these chips is that we will get a positive start to the trading session. What about the futures? Do we get a turnaround for the US futures? Well, again, at this hour, the indication is that we will get a slightly positive start to the trading session in the United States. One of the bigger problems, though, is it an existential problem? Is it a problem for the here and now? It's the one about the mismatch in what the markets are pricing in and the potential reality of the economic recovery. And I think that's why the news around the vaccines hurts so much. Even the IMF is weighing in on the valuation debate. Financial counsellor Tobias Adrian told me there is the possibility markets will pull back from here because of this disconnect. There is a risk of a pullback, uh, but having said that, uh, if the economic recovery and the fight against the pandemic is successful, we might see uh, further uh, rallying in, in, in stock prices as well. So there's really quite a lot of variance going forward. Let's delve a little bit deeper into that news around Eli Lilly as shares in the company closed nearly 3% lower after the drug maker paused its coronavirus antibody treatment over potential safety concerns. The company says one participant in the study fell ill. Reuters is reporting that the FDA uncovered serious quality control problems at a plant. President Trump has touted the drug as a, quote, cure for the disease. It is similar to the treatment made by Regeneron that was given to the president after he tested positive for COVID-19. The news comes less than 24 hours after Johnson & Johnson paused its coronavirus vaccine trial due to a participant falling ill. Meg Tyrrell has the latest. Well, Lilly confirmed on Tuesday afternoon that it had paused enrollment in one of its trials evaluating its antibody drug to treat COVID-19. We don't have a lot of details on what led to this right now, but here's what we do know. Uh, this is an NIH-sponsored study of Lilly's antibody drug for hospitalized patients. They're testing it on top of standard of care, which means uh, in combination with remdesivir uh, versus placebo and remdesivir alone. Uh, now, Lilly saying that the uh, pause on enrollment was implemented out of an abundance of caution uh, to ensure the safety of patients participating in the trial. Now, they say their other trials of their antibody drug have not been paused, so just not a lot of information at this point about what led to this. Now, Johnson & Johnson, of course, Monday night confirming that it had paused enrollment in its COVID-19 vaccine trials as it looks into an unexpected illness in one of the participants. In this situation as well, not a lot of information about what caused this or even if the participant was on the vaccine or on placebo, uh, we talked with J&J's CFO, Joe Wolk, about how this affects the company's timelines for that vaccine. 
even with the pause, we're still planning for success. We're looking at first quarter of next year is the timeline that we've put out there. Um, we are continuing to invest as if success will occur. So we expand, we're continuing to expand our manufacturing footprint to uh, ensure that in the event we do receive approval, that we're ready to go and manufacture and distribute vaccines to as many people as might need them. Now, of course, these headlines sound scary, but clinical trial experts like Dr. Eric Topol tell us that this is actually showing us that the proper safety checks are in place. This is, means the system's working, that independent data and safety monitoring boards are reviewing the data, getting all the facts together, and it's expected. It's, it's, uh, every large clinical trial runs into these things at one point or another, pretty much. He emphasized it's crucial that the companies be transparent about what they find out in order to build the public's trust. Now, Johnson & Johnson says it could be a few days before trial enrollment is resumed. It all depends, of course, uh, on what the event turned out to be. As a reminder, AstraZeneca's trial, even though it has restarted in countries around the world, is still on clinical hold in the United States by the FDA. Uh, that uh, a different situation where a safety event was found in somebody on the vaccine, the FDA continues to investigate. Meg Terrell, CNBC Business News. Uh, so let's refocus on these bank earnings. JP Morgan has reported $9.4 billion in third quarter net income that beat expectations as increased trading revenue and a drawdown in provisions offset the impact of near zero interest rates. Meanwhile, net income at Citigroup also came in above estimates thanks to strong fixed income trading and lower provisions that helped temper a sharp fall in profits and its consumer banking division. Um, the problem is the market kind of looked at the results and went, oh yeah, it's a beat. All right, what next? What are you going to give us next? And ultimately, shares in both of these banks closed lower, with Citi under added pressure after executives did not provide a cost estimate or a timetable to address regulatory concerns over its risk controls. So what comes next? Octavio Morenzi is the CEO of Opimas. Uh, in his notes, he writes this morning, if you look at the JP Morgan numbers, it's almost like coronavirus didn't happen. Octavio, good morning to you. Nice to see you. So it's a story of consumer banking v's investment banking. Do you see any reason in the fourth quarter why that trend is going to change? Well, I, I think the trend that we're seeing already is that the investment banking side is starting to slow down again. So the whole investment banking side and trading side and fixed income trading in particular did phenomenally well at the end of Q1 and throughout Q2. And, and those were real blowout quarters for these banks in terms of trading and investment banking. What we saw in, in the third quarter was that slowing down a bit. So trading was still way up compared to last year, but down compared to last quarter. So we're seeing that sort of stop, the, the, the defiance of gravity that we've seen in the trading revenues is sort of starting to, to ebb away and gradually we're getting back to, back to, to a more normal level. Uh, the consumer side banking, as you pointed out, has been a bit soft, but not as soft as you might expect given this environment. You quite rightly point out that the market looked at JP Morgan's earnings with a big yawn, basically, and said, so what, what are you going to give us next? But I think there's some distrust of it in terms of the accounting, because so much of it is basically these credit reserves that they've built up over the course of the past two quarters. 
massive reserves that are set aside, which are somewhat subjective in terms of how they calculate it and how they put them aside. It seemed even at the time that they were sort of over-reserving. And now they're correcting that, and so the earnings look that much better. So if you look at simply their return on equity, yes, we're back to pre-COVID levels, but there's been some playing around with the accounts a bit, well within what's allowed, but there is some subjectivity in that. And I think the markets are distrustful of that a bit. The accounts don't really mean as much as you might think they do. Octavia, as we came into this, everybody said, focus on the provisioning, focus on the provisioning, because that will let us understand what asset quality is likely to be going forward. What did you make of the provisioning that was done here? Well, uh, JP Morgan's provisioning is, has come way, way down. So I, I, I think, again, it points to an over-provisioning and over-reserving that they did in the past. And I think that makes perfect sense. If, if you're the CFO or the CFO of a large bank and you're looking at an environment where the economy looks like it's crumbling in front of you, yet your trading arm is generating phenomenal profits and the bank is going to look wildly profitable, you don't want that for a variety of reasons. First of all, you want to set some money aside for a rainy day that you can draw that down those reserves and afterwards. But also, you, you don't want the public to think that you're sort of the evil bank making wild profits while the rest of the economy is suffering terribly. So for a variety of reasons, they over-reserved and now they're sort of unwinding that. So that's what I, I would say there. Um, Citibank's reserves are still relatively high, so they're, they're, they're sort of closer to normality. Uh, but JP Morgan's have come way, way down. But they simply over-reserved. They, they've set aside too much money and they recognise that. And now they're drawing that down to make the profits look better. Octavia, can I just push back on that a little bit? Because I understand the point about shuffling some of the provisions around from one cupboard to another. But there was a comment from Jamie Dimon that effectively pointed out if there is a double dip recession, that perhaps the bank needs even more reserves, saying they've got about 34 billion in total currently. But if there's a double dip recession or another downturn, they could need another 20 billion in reserves. Can we completely rule that scenario out, given we don't have a second fiscal stimulus package at this point? Well, I, I certainly don't think you can rule out that uh, there's more lockdowns that come as a result of COVID and there's more pain and suffering in the economy. So absolutely, if that were to occur, then yes, things would look bleak and uh, they would certainly need more provisions in, in, in if that were to happen. But bear in mind, the actual real credit losses have not been that bad. So what's been really driving this has been their reserves and their forecasts about future losses. Clearly, if the economy slows down again and there's a severe double dip, things will then happen. In terms of uh, the stimulus package, I, I'm not necessarily the school of thought that believes that these kind of stimulus package works. They, they work for individual industries and you can bail out individual industries. I don't believe that you can uh, really uh, pull up the entire economy that way. Uh, and a bank like JP Morgan is going to be dependent on the broader economy in terms of it, its success. So. I, th I think, yes, if there is a double dip, uh, and it looks likely there might be, there'll be additional reserves. But we look, I was basically looking backwards over the course of the past two or three quarters, where have they been and where are they going? But uh, certainly, if, if there's another downturn, another severe COVID downturn, yes, then all bets are off. It's only been uh, early days, really, as we've moved throughout this final quarter of the year. But if you consider what we had in the second quarter, very bumper trading revenue because of that post uh, initial shock for the markets and the recovery trade that took place. Uh, third quarter, not as great, but still decent. What lies ahead this quarter, do you think? Because we do have the election, possibly any reaction to fiscal stimulus, perhaps more monetary stimulus from certain central banks around the world. What do you think the trading revenue looks like for the final quarter for these banks? 
Well, I think that huge bump in trading revenues that we saw starting at the end of Q1 and going into Q2 was largely a response to monetary policy. And in particular, the Fed in the US just throwing cash at the markets and, and unleashing sort of a tidal wave of liquidity. And that's really what led to those huge bump of profits that you refer to. It, is that going to happen again? I don't think the Fed has the wherewithal to do that. And I think the interest rates are so low, you can't even you can't go much lower. So the a possibility for a huge monetary stimulus in this coming quarter, I think, is extremely limited. And the Fed is more advocating a policy that sort of steady as she goes, we're not going to change anything, we're going to remain at this level for the next few years. So I, I wouldn't expect any dramatic changes in terms of monetary policy. I think the bigger thing hanging on the horizon is basically political instability in the US. Now, this election looks very contentious. Both sides are lawyering up in all the states they can find to contest the elections anywhere it might be even near to being close. And so we're looking at a scenario quite potentially similar to 2000 with Bush versus Gore, where things stretch out after the election, where it's uncertain who won, it's unclear who the next president is, and this gets contested in, in a fairly aggressive way by both sides. So I think we should be prepared for that. And that is going to be a, a very negative thing for the market overall if that happens. Now, it's, it's hard to say whether that will come into, into fruition, but both sides seem to be moving in that direction quite aggressively and assertively. Octavia, just to throw forward to today, obviously the bank earnings continue, Goldman Sachs, Bank of America, uh, Wells Fargo. Um, as we look at these earnings, are you expecting anything out of the ordinary, given that we now have the pace set by JP Morgan and Citigroup? Well, I think it's really a sort of a tale of two cities. You've got the retail and corporate, sort of the brick and mortar mainstream banking that's a bit soft, and you've got the trading and investment banking that's doing really well. So firms like Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley, who are much more dependent on that side of the house, on the investment banking side, are going to do very, very well. And I would expect uh, Goldman Sachs to do particularly well in this environment. So I would expect their earnings to be up 35 40% compared to the same period last year. Other banks like Wells Fargo, I think, will suffer and struggle because they're so exposed to the consumer uh, and, and sort of business banking side of things. So that, I think, is going to be what we see. I don't think there's any major surprises in that. I don't expect to see any major surprises at all. Uh, perhaps Wells Fargo more on the downside. There's more downside potential there. That's a bank that seems to be at sea without a rudder a bit trying to find this direction. But so I think that's the direction. going. It's just going to be a continuation of what we've seen at Citi and at JP Morgan. Terrific. Nice to see you this morning, Octavio. Thank you for joining us. Octavio uh, Morenzi, the CEO of OpenMass. On the issue of the banks, the IMF believes the global banking system is quite stable following their first ever global stress test. But the fund's financial counsellor and director of the monetary and capital markets, Tobias Adrian, told me where he expects to see some weakness going forward. We do find that in the aggregate, uh, banks are you know, well capitalized, even in the face of further adverse developments. So if the pandemic were to last longer or the economic difficulties were to last longer than currently expected, even in the face of such adverse developments, the banking system globally is well capitalized. However, there are pockets of weakness in the banking system. Many countries have a weak tail of banks and uh, that weak tail is concentrated in some countries. And uh, so some countries already entered this crisis uh, with some struggles and uh, that might persist and lead to, to uh, further damage down the road.
Tobias Adrian. Our U.S. colleagues will speak with Wells Fargo CFO John Shrewsbury as the bank reports its latest results. That's coming up at 21.10 Central European time. And tomorrow we'll bring you our interview with Standard Chartered CEO Bill Winters. Karen. Well, Jeff, uh, Germany's Bundesbank is urging lenders to brace themselves for a sharp surge in corporate insolvencies. The central bank's report found insolvencies in Germany are set to rise to 35% by next March, their highest level since 2013. However, speaking to CNBC, Bundesbank Vice President Claudia Bush said stricter financial regulation means banks should be able to weather an increase in bankruptcy and loan losses. We certainly will see an increase in insolvencies in the corporate sector. Um, we have some um, simulations which tell us that um, insolvencies are going to increase. Um, interestingly, not um, beyond in our baseline scenario, not beyond the level that we've seen in the global financial crisis. And if everything evolves according to the to the baseline. And then we actually see that the banks are able to deal with those increases in provisioning loan losses that will inevitably be associated um, with increasing insolvencies. But we're also saying that banks have to use the capital buffers that they have because that's the second element which um, is contributing to the resilience so far that um, we've done significant financial sector reforms. Banks do have higher buffers now and they have to use them. All right, well, let's uh, take a quick break. When we come back, Apple unveils its first 5G smartphone as CEO Tim Cook promises a new era for iPhones. More details after the break. And... And for more on the market impact from those paused vaccine trials and the official kickoff of earnings season, don't forget to check out the Squawk Box podcast. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. watching Sportbox. So I want to take you to ASML, a very interesting company given we just had the big iPhone reveal overnight with a new chip made by an ASML chip machine. The company reporting numbers today, it uh, has effectively reported better than expected earnings for the third quarter, saying it saw double digit growth in 2021. So forecasting ahead, it's uh, reported sales of 3.96 billion euros. That was ahead of analyst estimates for 3.7 billion euros and net profit at 1.06 billion euros. Uh, the CFO uh, saying that uh, the forecast in the fourth quarter expect low double-digit growth in 2021. I think that's what we're watching out for now as we all closely eye what takes place with those iPhone uh, 12 orders. So very key. Also just worth noting that this company has been embroiled in some trade concerns. The Americans do not want it uh, selling some of its equipment to the Chinese because of concerns about how it will be used in China. So 
but currently it also has to go through a licensing procedure if it wants to sell some of the older equipment to the Chinese. But uh, the company is still upbeat on uh, what it's going to see. It says uh, U.S. regulations mean the company can ship DUV systems to Chinese customers, but needs a license in some cases. It says uh, 2020 China sales a little over 1 billion euros is where they see them at at this stage. But uh, just fascinating to see all the components in Apple, uh, given all the focus that we've seen on these devices overnight, Jeff. Karen, thank you. Um, let's talk about Apple. Apple has unveiled its new smartphone lineup, which supports 5G technology. Then the four new iPhone 12 devices also include faster chips and better cameras and come in different sizes, including a smaller version called the iPhone 12 mini. In a virtual presentation, CEO Tim Cook called it a step forward for the company. It's remarkable to think about where iPhone started and where it is today. Now with support for high-performance 5G networks, the powerhouse A14 chip, Super Retina XDR displays with ceramic shield, MagSafe, and breakthrough camera systems that even record Dolby Vision video, and Pro models that take the experience further with a Pro design, four incredible cameras, LiDAR scanner, and the largest display we've ever shipped in an iPhone. We've come so far with a device that is so important to our daily lives. This marks the start of a new era for iPhone. Let's get out to Arjun for more. Arjun, it felt like there was a bit too much hype coming into this event, that there'd be a big super cycle upgrade. The market reaction's been disappointing, but also from some of the key Chinese customers as well. Yeah, I mean, in terms of the market reaction, I'll address that first, Karen, because in that sense, you know, we've seen a massive rally in Apple shares this year. The day before the event, there was a 6% jump in the share price. So there was just probably a little bit of uh, pausing for breath somewhat as we await to see how the pre-orders go for the iPhone 12, which begins in a few days. I think that was really the suggestion here. One of the things around 5G, of course, is there was a lot of hype around this right now. Tim Cook talked about it a lot, about all the things you can do faster download speeds, videos, gaming, etc. I mean, if you look, think about it, the US build out of 5G is in its infancy right now. You know, it's unclear whether even you, users can get the blistering speeds promised by 5G at this point in time. But I think investors are looking at this, analysts are looking at this as, a, as an upgrade cycle that's not just not for the next year, but over the next two or three years, as you see a build out of the 5G networks, increasingly China is going to be important. China is now the world's largest 5G market in terms of smartphone sales in terms of the number of connections as well. And that's where I think the iPhone 12 is going to be incredibly important as well. I think one of the other points about this, the fact that the company released four new iPhones, all the way from an iPhone mini through to the iPhone 12 Pro Max. Now, if you look at the entire iPhone range now, not just the iPhone 12, but the 11, the 10R and the cheaper iPhone SE, that gives Apple an iPhone range that begins at around $399 all the way to plus $1,000. And that's a, a step change for Apple, which used to just play in that ultra premium segment. So I think this is recognition here from the Cupertino giant that it needs to play at various pr price points in a very, very uh, tough smartphone market right now. So I think the, the, the key focus for investors right now is going to watch those pre-order numbers and see whether the 5G promise will be enough for consumers to buy. Guys, back to you.
Arjun, let me ask you beyond the 5G promise, you are our technology guru on the channel here. Um, are you excited about the new cases and an, about the new products? Does it have the sizzle factor for you? Are your generation going to be rushing to the stores for the upgrade, uh, upgrade cycle? I think one thing that will sort of uh, stand Apple in good stead is, as I mentioned, at the various price points. That gives potentially uh, consumers the ability to upgrade their phone to a 5G phone, but perhaps not with the price tag that they were expecting, which was uh, perhaps a higher price. Is that something in terms of the technology? Look, you've got the regular feature upgrades. You've got a brand new chip, a brand new camera. That's something uh, that I think will get consumers excited right now. There's a lot to look forward to, but at the same time, I mean, if you'd gone out and bought an iPhone 11, arguably even an iPhone 10. These iPhone 12 does not make a huge difference, I think, at this point beyond, uh, you know, the, the chip at this point and the 5G. And, and I go back to that point, the 5G networks right now, they're in their infancy. You're going to get a phone. Are you going to get the blistering speeds promised by 5G? Unlikely. Unlikely at this point in time. Depends where you live, depends where you are. And so is that enough to fork out the money to buy these phones? I think that's really the big question. I think if we look two, maybe three years down the line, uh, when 5G is, is a lot more widespread, then more use cases will come about. There might be a little bit more reason to upgrade to some of these devices. But I think there are a lot of people as well. You know, the iPhone user base is at about 950 million. There's going to be a large chunk of that on very old iPhones, perhaps looking at these and going, well, I think it's time for me to upgrade. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show weekdays on CNBC.